every person out here this evening changed America tonight. Yeah. I, uh, welcome to the dunk zone, everybody. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to I Think You'd Be Into It, the podcast about your problematic faves. I'm your co-host, Brandon Beck. I'm the uh, leader of the dunk zone, Beth Scorzato. <laughs> She's heating up. Um, and joining us today is a longtime friend of the show. Uh, past guest, uh, sweetheart of the DSA. Um, we actually, to introduce her, we're going to read a tweet oh, yeah. she just quoted. Uh, about... While you were on the way here, we both read this and we're like, can I open the show by reading this? Yeah. And it was me. I'm so skeptical. My mother. Let me guess about something the Democrats want to do that sounds good, but you think is deeply flawed. Me. About these cherry cola Oreos. <laughs> so, did you try the cherry cola Oreos? I did. They're interesting. I'm not sure. There's like little crockly things, so it has like it like like mimics, pop rocks. Yeah, like Ugh. so like it mimics like a carbonated. Oh wait, those are the cherry cola ones. I thought those were like the fireworks ones. Well, those are the cherry cola ones too. I haven't tried the fireworks one. Oh. Um, but what was remarkable is this entire conversation with my mother is happening while I'm holding the Oreo and staring at it. <laughs> and she was just and she was already like so irritated with me. She like she didn't care. What the Democrats are planning on doing? She didn't want to hear my thoughts on it. She was like already so exacerbated or exacerbated <laughs> by me and all of my thoughts and opinions. And uh, you were like, "I just I'm talking about Oreos." Yeah. Well, and then I took a bite and I was like, "I'm unsure. I'm gonna have to try this again later." Well, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Oreo expert Kelsey Goldberg, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. I like to critically engage with things: that's, food, politics, friends. That's fair, and that's that's why that's why <laughs> we're here. Family relationships. <laughs> 
We, we love to engage in those. <laughs> so before we get started, like we always do, um, we're going to just each choose something that we're super into this week. Don't worry. I'll go first. <laughs> I have become completely obsessed with a podcast called Podcast the Ride. <laughs> it's uh, it's three comedy writers from here in L.A., uh, Scott Gardner, uh, Mike Carlson, and I can't remember Jason's last name. Jason Sheridan. And they're uh, just, it's basically three copies of me making goofs about Disney rides for two hours a week. One of the hosts created not one, but two of my absolute favorite YouTube videos, The Hall of Inaccurate Presidents, and uh, a documentary about the, the Beatles from the year 3000, um, which are both totally worth checking out. Um, but yeah. Oh, I didn't know that was one of them. Yep. Yep. Uh, Jimmy Goose. Yeah, President Jimmy Goose. Um, yeah, if you've never seen if you've never seen Hall of Inaccurate Presidents, it's just that. It's He's just gonna link it in the show notes for sure. I I'm 100 gonna do that. Literally everything I've ever said I was gonna put in the show notes in this show I've put in the show notes. I'm not I doubting haven't. you. I really haven't. Okay, well I was gonna vouch for you for once. You dunked yourself there. Welcome to the dunk zone. <laughs> no. From now on, anytime anyone dunks on each other, I'm just gonna sing that. God, I That's really gonna make you so fun you to be around. That? I know it's gonna be great, right? I I am just it's gonna uh, really it's gonna really up how uh, how fun you are to be around, along I, with all your other bits and goofs. Yep, <laughs> I am just full of charm and spunk and a verve for life. Uh, you're full of something, Beth. What are you into this week? Um, Go right now. I'm still into cartoons. I just caught up on. Um, on, uh, I just caught up on Star vs. the Force of Evil and uh, the whole uh, Steven Universe Five Night Special that just happened and I have feelings but I'm not going to ruin it for people well, because it hasn't. Was this one of those ones where it's like just five episodes that rip your heart yes. into a million pieces yes. and are also about and like... And answer all the questions you've had for five years, yes. While also being like beautiful meditations on like gay identity yes that's the whole point of steven universe but i don't want to yeah. ruin it for people but seriously if you haven't caught up yet go do it go do it kelsey mm -hmm. what are you into this week so i just finally got around to watching hannah gadsby's nanette oh god i want to see that i've heard such good things so fucking good i like i don't think it is overstating it to say that it's like one of the most important stand-up specials of like the last decade uh, I've watched it three times now in like less than 48 hours. I watched just the trailer, but it was like when I was already having like a moment and I was high and I was like, Oh, I don't think I could do yeah, this no, right now. Will, just the trailer. The, I have so many feelings. You will laugh so hard. You will also cry. And like yeah. it, like ever since I got into comedy, even before I got into comedy, all my like comic friends, usually male, all had the like story of that like special or that comic that made them want to be a comedian. And I just had like needing to laugh because otherwise like life is too like yeah awful like yeah. and and like also like needing to like make people laugh because i'm like confident someone's arrogant because i'm like opinionated and brash and like in order to be considered likable and still exist in my like normal state of a human Being i had to like woman. yeah <laughs> and like be a woman and be all those characteristics i had to like endear myself and i did it by like making people laugh to make space for me to like exist naturally and she it's just such, like, she just, she talks about her trauma and her, like, anger around it in a way that is, like, earnest. She manages to make jokes that stem from those experiences that does not trivialize what she, like, trivialize what she went through. It is, like, the stand-up special that anyone from a marginalized community who got into comedy because it was a coping mechanism needs to see. And I just think she, like, 
opened the door for like marginalized comedians to do comedy about their experiences for audiences that are predominantly not people that have those experiences because comedy audiences are still white men without having to do white male comedy, which I think most comics before, however good they are, there was some degree of how do I make this like palatable for yeah. white men. And, and a lot of that is self-deprecating stuff. I saw like the yeah. section on that. Yeah. And she was just like, this is not mean about being palatable to white men. If all I have to do is be riveting to them. Yeah. And it, it's like a liberating experience to watch. And like, I don't do stand up. Um, actually because I had like a, like was sexually harassed at a comedy club and just was like, I fucking hate this. And I love sketch comedy. Like I don't need to do both. Yeah. And I'm watching this. I'm like, Oh fuck. Am I going to start going to open mics? Like I'm probably going to start going to open mics again, <laughs> which I, might be the uh, worst thing to come of it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I would love to do that. I did an open mic once. I cannot tell the story about it on this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, on, on a similar tack, there's uh, Cameron Esposito's new special, Ooh, uh, like Rape her. Jokes, which is she she dropped for free after shooting it at UCB like three weeks Month? ago. Oh, yeah, she like was a month rehearsing ago. it a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah, she she put the whole thing together in like six weeks, and uh, all of the it's free on her website. But we had if you can, to go one night, but then somebody went to Weird Al instead. Yeah. Oh. I, I, I still regret nothing, but um, <laughs> oh, that's not how that sentence is supposed to end. Ooh, <laughs> um, no, he is a white male. I, yeah, that's fair. That's I, fair. I, I had white male of a certain age. <laughs> I I needed to be with my people that night because <laughs> uh, <laughs> you were so often without them. <laughs> I know. Oh god, we went to we went and saw Janelle Monae the other night, and uh, at one point during one of the songs, she just brought like half a dozen people from the pit up on stage to dance, and they were all like handsome and beautiful and like really good dancers and diverse and diverse yeah and then there was just a dude, dude in a red like hoodie <laughs> and, and I, I turned to her and i was like for the first time i feel represented at this concert <laughs> uh, she was incredible though um yeah but uh yeah, um, yeah if you have a chance to see her tour fucking do it bro. so good but uh yeah uh cameron Esposito's rape jokes experience. it's free on her website but you can donate to you can do pay what you can and the proceeds go to rain oh nice that's um, a really good charity i think as of now they've raised about 50k it'll probably be more by the time this drops in a couple of weeks but uh and it, it's she does a lot of similar stuff about like how it feels to be a comedian uh who has been assaulted and, and who has just seen a lot of shit and like a lot of it is kind of addressed to the dudes who are like um what what do, what do i what do i do like how do I, like how do I stay a good person knowing all of this? Which is which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's worth checking out too, and, and in a kind of similar. If you're if you're in a, a mood for some like really thought provoking specials, maybe watch both of those. Oh heck yeah! Well, I've watched Nanette three times in forty eight hours, and I kind of yeah. want to watch it with my mom. Yeah. But maybe I'll give myself a day. So <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got time for more thought provoking. Uh specials that are like doubling as therapy until I could find a good therapist <laughs> in my shitty healthcare system. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of shitty healthcare systems. Oh, look at that sweet we, transition. Thank Everything's you. connected. Thank you. I'm, I'm okay at segues sometimes. <laughs> we are here to talk about uh, democratic socialism. Yeah. And my cat is just like right between the two of us and I apologize. That's okay. I can look in one of your eyes. I can move her and she will come right back. Yeah. Because she's a cat. The podcast, guys. The podcast <laughs> is still here. <laughs> so, uh, you are um, an organizer and a 
a member of the DSA in Los Angeles, right? Yes. You're very involved with them. Uh, if you want to just tell us a little bit about it, because I know um, there are a lot of misconceptions about it. Um, I know it's not an actual political party. It's an organization. Yeah. Um, and that a lot of DSA works on a more local level. So you're more involved here in LA, though there are national initiatives, right? Yeah. So, and I, th I think when you were on last year, you had just gotten involved. I had just them. gotten involved. Yeah. And now you're like the queen. Of yeah, the which we didn't DSA. mention it. We didn't <laughs> no, mention it up top. But if you do want to hear Kelsey's last episode, it's Tardigrades. I believe it's episode. It's an oldie. It's like three or four. Yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely the first awesome. half If you don't know, if you're like, what is that word they are saying? Go listen to the episode because you definitely be into Tardigrades. She's still into them. Yes. I'm so into them. Um, yeah, I mean, the one thing about DSA is, like, you can't become, like, the king or queen of it because we're yeah. democratic socialists and, like, monarchs go to guillotines. Yes. <laughs> we were just joking, yeah. though. But, yeah, no, I'm super involved. I'm in, like, I hold a couple of leadership positions. Mm -hmm. uh, our, each local, uh, so I'm going to use the term chapter because that's, like, what they're colloquially called. They are okay. technically locals because we're, like, using the union term, but effectively, like, chapter. I thought yeah. it was a murder of socialists. Uh, <laughs> But I'm, that's capitalism. Ah, ah, yeah. Uh, that's just what Trump wants to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but each chapter has their own bylaws. So like the, uh, like yeah, I read the LA structure. ones this morning. Thank you. I helped I write did. those. I read the LA ones. Well, cause it said too, it is LA is one of the largest ones. So it was yeah. important for you guys to have your own mission statement. Read yeah. The so we've got like bylaws. mission statement and goals. We've got our leadership body is the steering committee. It's nine elected leaders. Uh, I'm one of those nine. Um, and then each committee has a minimum of two elected leaders they have to have. We've got roughly 20 committees. Mm -hmm. And uh, to sort of balance, like, how do you make uh, how do you make democratic decisions without having to make a large membership vote on all of these like small things? Yeah. Each committee wrote a platform that was put up for uh, first notes from the general membership, like whether or not you do work on that committee and then was voted on. So the committees can do anything within their platform without it needing to go to like a wider vote. And if they want to do something that is outside their platform, then it's like a slower process that requires more democratic buy-in. So that's kind of how we like threaded that needle. Mm -hmm. um, but our committees, like the steering committee doesn't make policy decisions. The committees do. And if we need to take a stance on something that's not a committee, then steering can sort of lead but still like sometimes like because sometimes you have to make quick calls like there's yeah. an ask to participate in a march around work that we don't have a stance on and steering committee might have to decide like yay or nay mm -hmm. but there's like a lot of avenues for the uh, membership to tell us if they're upset with that decision mm -hmm. um that hasn't come up that often but so like the steering committee or like the like leadership is really just like really hard-working bureaucrats <laughs> uh, and we basically just make sure that like all the work being done fits within these platforms mm -hmm. and that if something's being done that doesn't, that we like help them find the mm -hmm. like agreed upon mechanism for doing that. Yeah. And George Soros pays for all of this, right? <laughs> yes. God, I wish so, that man owes me money. <laughs> so right now we are, um, definitely riding high still like a week or two out from the Ocasio-Cortez yes. victory. Um, which I think has put the DSA on the radar of a lot of people, even though it's not here in LA and uh, I think that did stem on a lot more conversation about the fact that it isn't a political party, right? She ran as a Democrat. She ran as a Democrat. She's a member of the New York chapter of DSA. Yes. Um, and she was endorsed by both local and national. Okay. Because um, each local chapter will have their own endorsement process and the national does as well. She, uh, um, she worked for Bernie, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I just 
have to give mad props to New York DSA. Their electoral ground game is so impressive and so inspiring. Like the number of doors they knocked on, I think they said that they had like something like 500 volunteers knocking on doors for her and a hundred of them came just from DSA. Mm-hmm. Damn. Um, and again, like these are people like free time and New York does more than just electoral. So like that's really freaking impressive. Uh, we are not a formal political party. We're a large membership. There might be some members who want us to become one. Yeah. I don't think that that is, that doesn't seem to me where the larger membership yeah. is at. I think a lot of us, especially because we're riding high from AOC's win, mm-hmm. but we're also uh, very much active. Uh, we just came off of Abolish Ice Week mm-hmm. uh, and all the chapters over the like last week, uh, so the June 25th to the 30th, engaged in a lot of Abolish Ice actions and recognized that like, the change for that, like, we can't wait for November. What do you do? And there's a lot of value and a, a lot of ways to affect politics outside of the electoral system. Yeah. And so I think that I've heard some concerns from non-DSA members that, like, well, is this going to become a third party? And I think that a lot of DSA members would find that shifting our sole focus to electoral would, like, be limiting our ability to build power because mm-hmm. it can only be expressed at the ballot box. And there's things that need to be fought against day to day, especially under Trump, but as... Yeah. uh socialists and democratic socialists and, and we would a, argue under democrats as well and even uh from a bureaucratic standpoint being registered as a non-profit allows you a lot more flexibility than if you're reg- registered with the federal election commission there's yeah. a lot more rules there's a lot more not that you guys are out there breaking rules but there's very specific requirements that need to be met yeah um, and like one of the cool things about this organization and action organization doesn't need to meet those same requirements exactly and i think one of the cool things about dsa is it's like really easy to go from no experience to leadership mm-hmm. um there's a lot of like and and it's getting i would argue easier because there's more tra- like to go to like competent leadership because there's more and more trainings and i think uh having to follow all those specific specific rules would create a pretty high barrier to entry mm-hmm. um and what's the point of building power if the people you're trying to like say like hey flex your power then you go oh sorry you're not trained enough to be this like to be in this leadership position like there's that's yeah uh then we are just the democrats yeah how did you get involved with the dsa um I was, it, it seems like it all happened very quickly it like, did i i just saw you oh yeah <laughs> like you mentioned the dsa and then suddenly it looked like you were in charge well <laughs> actually i mean a lot of that just a quick sidebar is that they the dsa itself has grown immensely i mean it, it used to be a different organization it, it grew out of like the old um socialist organization after it no longer was registered as a political party in the 50s. But for years and years, they don't have to file official membership. I looked all this shit up this morning. Yeah, this um, is they don't have to. They don't have to file official membership records because they're not a political party, but they do in order to keep their nonprofit status with the mail, with literally with the post office so that they can mail out their newsletter. They have to register how many people get the newsletter, and that's like the easiest way to gauge the number of people involved in DSA. Oh, and as of like... Two years ago, it was still, it was like holding steady at like five or 6,000 people, like 8,000 people tops. And then in 2017, it jumped up to 28,000 members. <clears throat> Damn. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's definitely like a growing new organization in a lot of 40, ways. 40,000 as of like yeah. two days ago. Yeah. What, what, but yeah. So what is, what is your story of getting involved? So when Bernie lost, I was really mad. Okay. Um, I also like. Why, perchance? Uh, because <laughs> I went. Like, I went to school in Canada, and in Canada they have a party called the NDP, which is, like, their Democratic Socialist Party, mm-hmm. and it was led at the time, he's unfortunately passed away, by this amazing man named Jack Layton. And so these ideas of free healthcare I was, like, experiencing, because I got it. 
Um, I went to college, one of the best colleges in the world, with the sons and daughters of truck drivers and, like, secretaries and and people who I would never met in my private school education uh, in elementary school and high school and certainly would not have met if I had gone to college in the States. Sure. Um, because I had almost ex- exclusively applied either to, like, state colleges that I was out of state for um, and to theater school, which the arts, there's like a little bit of a class barrier as well, because, mm-hmm. uh, you can only really pursue it if you've got a little bit of a familial financial safety net yeah. because you're never going to make any money at it. Uh, wait, and what? private colleges. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Shocker. Uh, and so wait, just dunked on all, all of ourselves. Yeah. Welcome uh, to the dunk zone. <laughs> Three really dunks in I do, do self deprecating humor. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it was like just this idea of like a lot of these like class structures, that I like intellectually understood were wrong. I got like a type of diversity going to school in Canada that like I, and right re- and very quickly recognized that I wouldn't have gotten that into this in the States. Um, and I started identifying less and less with the friends I went to high school with and more and more with the people that like I had gone to college with. And then after college, I only worked like low income, like service jobs. And um, that was sort of my like class consciousness was like kind of sort of, it wasn't, defined or something I could like, articulate, but like the seeds were there. And then when I came back to the States, I was mad because I didn't want to come back to the States. The Canadian say, government, didn't you get deported? I did get deported. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I was, there's a lot of my politics except for me being mad. Uh, That's good though. Yeah. Mad we can work with. Yeah. So I got mad. I was mad because I like didn't want to be back here. And, and at then, least you weren't ripped away from your child and family when you yeah, were Yeah. I mean, I will say like, there's no such thing as a compassionate deportation Deportation. as someone who got what is one of the most compassionate deportations you could hope for. Uh, It's getting your life ripped away from you. is just traumatizing and being forced to go back. And like, I got to go back to Los Angeles. I wasn't going back to like dangerous zone. So it's like not even comparable to what like people are experiencing. But I I do want to say that to disabuse liberals out there who might think like, well, we need some way to deport people. Like, okay. But like that is as like, that is a lot of cases. Like, an incredibly traumatizing thing you're doing to someone kind of like putting someone in prison, let's say like yeah. a, like these are punishments. These aren't it's, it's you're punishing the person. There, there are th- a lot of people I think mistakenly view it as like, Oh, well it's just like you're moving back. And it's like, well, yeah. no, it's a lot more sudden than that. You're, you're suddenly it's, it's not your choice. Yeah. 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 It is. It is a punishment always. Um, and so if you, if you're going to advocate for that, like make sure you've got a clear moral backing for why you think those people should be punished. Um, but yeah, so I was mad and then I got, uh, deported just like, I finally left like two weeks after I turned 26. So I also no longer had Canadian healthcare and was no longer eligible for my parents' healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and like navigating that, like, and I'm very lucky my parents like helped me pay for it. Cause I'd like, wouldn't be able to pay for my Obamacare without that. And like my mom is really nice and like helped me a lot with like a lot of the, like overwhelming bureaucratic stuff. But then there's that sense of like. I don't think I could have done this without them. What do people who don't have yeah. this do? So I was just very angry. And then Bernie ran and I saw all of these other people who were angry like me. And I kind of thought I was always going to be just this like sad, angry little lefty in America, but that there was no hope that the American people didn't want this. And to see like him kind of open the curtain for that was really cool. And I think one of the misconceptions about like the quote unquote Bernie bros is that we're loyal to him. And we're not. Mm -hmm. He said he refused to say on air that he wanted to abolish ICE the other day. And it was the left that was screaming at him the loudest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the 
ideas that he was fighting for yeah. that we are very, very loyal to and seeing like people with like that was cool. Mm-hmm. But then uh, Trump was running. Yeah. So I was a good girl and I shut the fuck up and I voted for Hillary mm-hmm. and she won. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then she didn't get the presidency yeah. because of a flawed system. Yep. And everybody blamed people like me mm-hmm. and Jill Stein voters mm-hmm. for her winning and not the system that meant that you could win by 2.8 million votes and not get the presidency. And I just went, you know what? Fuck this. Burn this all down. Mm-hmm. I want to go organize around leftist ideas because we are never going to fix anything. Our well-meaning analysis of the political system in which we live is so flawed and nascent that like people would rather blame each other than blame a flawed system. Oh yeah. Um, it's punching down to make fun of Jill Stein voters to put it in comedy terms. In my opinion, uh, all they did was vote for the person they wanted to be president. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and I looked online and DSA just of like, like PSL and ISL, some of these other socialist organizations, uh, just were like a little too radical for me at the time. Or they had like praxis exams. And I was like, I don't, my politics aren't developed yet to like pass a test on it. Yeah. And I joined DSA now I don't identify as a democratic socialist. I identify as a socialist. Mm-hmm. And that happened like within a month. The joke is like you joined DSA and like you just shoot left. Yeah. Um, but then I did uh, at my first meeting, they're like, what skills, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I'm really interested in like counteracting like the hegemonic capitalist narrative. I think we need a media committee. Mm-hmm. And my friend Brandon uh, was no, not my I, friend at the time. He was a stranger. Not this Brandon. Yeah, and, and, uh, A great organizer named Brandon Ray Ramirez who had been in DSA before, like, all, like, long-time yeah. DSA member, but, like, my age, uh, was, like, cool, all right, I'm going to head that committee, and then I was, like, cool, I'll join it, and then, like, two weeks later, I get, a ma- like, a Facebook message from him, he's, like, hey, like, actually, like, could you head the committee with this other guy, Josh? I'll teach you how to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I headed the committee, and then all of the, this was before we had any bylaws, all of the heads of committees ended up being the executive committee tasked with holding elections, uh, and so like three months after joining, we had elections and I ran out at once. So I literally did go from joining to leadership within like <laughs> a very short period of Shit. time. Well, um, I mean, I mean, no one has ever accused you of not going full hog on anything. I only have two <laughs> speeds. I'm not interested or it's my entire life. Like yeah. that's, I like, like I follow my instincts very much to like, yeah, very much. I went from like eating meat to being a vegetarian at a dinner, like looked at the menu and was like. I don't think I like eat meat anymore. I'm going to be a vegetarian was a vegetarian for like eight years. And then was like, you know what? I'm going to eat meat again. I just did it. Like that's <laughs> kind of how Damn. I make large, like moving to Canada was, I woke yeah. up one day. I was like, I'm going to go move to Canada. <laughs> like, hey, if it works. Yeah. I do know that in high school, the only, the only thing that stopped my, uh, my best friend and I from registering as socialists was because in Connecticut, we have a two party primary and we <laughs> wanted to be able to vote in primaries, which is fair. <laughs> yeah. I unregistered as a Democrat, uh, when they, kind of, in my opinion, sidelined Keith Ellison from uh, becoming, like, the head of the DNC. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't like that they, like, s- did, like, opposition research on one of their own fucking members to try and paint him as anti-Semitic when he's not. Yeah. Uh, so I did it as, like, a, kind of a protest and a middle finger to the Democratic Party. Meaningless. They don't know who I am. They yeah. don't care who I am. They never will. Um, being registered is, like, kind of meaningless, especially in California where we have open primaries yeah. and I can still vote in their primaries. But if I'm, if you live in a state where yeah. there's, I grew up in Connecticut where it's a closed primary. Yeah, it, um, just stay in the party and hate, hate it from within. When I was in, <laughs> when I was in high school, I, I, I grew up in North Carolina and 
went to a very uh, conservative, rich white person school. Mm -hmm. Great school, but like the majority of people there were, you know, the kids of bankers and doctors. And, you know, so, so a lot of them came from a sort of conservative background. And the second Bush election... I missed being able to vote by about three months. Ooh, that um, sucks. And that, that was the first time I'd ever sort of gotten involved with politics because so many of my friends were Democrats, but it felt like it was just the, like, eight of us. And it was the first time I had sort of felt this, like, what, like, I was deeply, deeply bothered by the sort of rise of anti-intellectualism yeah. that had sort of, you know, popped up back then, which... It's funny looking at that now. Yeah. Um, but back then, I thought that the Democratic Party, I thought everyone involved was like Bernie. Like, like that was my impression, is that if you weren't a Republican, you were a full left-wing, you know, crazy person. And as I, you know, got older and watched the last couple elections and really learned more about the Democratic Party in general, I realized, oh, wait, that's defo not the case. And it was super frustrating to me to see so much of it, like, bogged down in dumb politics or, like, money shit that, like, felt like they were getting in the way. And that's what I think was so refreshing about seeing the DSA kind of explode. And Bernie, too, is, like, Oh, this actually feels like a like a real like grassroots thing rather than like a movement that was kind of planned. Yeah, we were, we were a house divided here. Yeah, he uh, he voted for Bernie in the primary, and I did not. But it's because I come, I fucking love everything that he stood for, and I loved for his, I loved his platform. But I do come from a, a house that like my mom was a civics teacher. We like. I knew a lot about like how government works from an early age, and so I was like trying to be pragmatic more than anything. Yeah, and I knew that we were in California, and it wouldn't fucking matter either way. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, also like if it's punching down to make fun of Jill Stein voters, it is punching down to make fun of like regular people, Hillary voters, celebrities on Twitter. It's fucking punching up, and then it's to be taken out of friggin' peg. <laughs> but like, yeah, like you, and also like hindsight is twenty twenty. Like I voted for Bernie very excitedly, but like. Uh, thought I was making an unpragmatic choice, but now I think actually the pragmatic choice, knowing that Trump won, was to vote for the only person who polled higher than Trump in the generals, which was Bernie. But none of no one thought that he was going to get Republican yeah. nomination. Yeah, and like it's you know yeah re rehashing the um, 2016 election does nothing leads nowhere but to madness. Yeah, and yeah. also like I do think, and I think most people would disagree with me on this, um, but for me, I'm like. I'm not saying I'm going to do this in every election, but I do think that uh, the fact that, that we live in an, in an electoral system where the thing you are thinking about when you're voting is not who do I want to give power to, which is what a vote literally is. It's the bestowing of power to yeah. someone is deeply flawed. And uh, I think everyone, especially like, especially like, yeah, we're thinking of math, not of people. Yeah. But like, 
Trump winning was like deeply psychologically damaging for like a yeah. lot of the country. And I actually think that if I had, cause I voted for Hillary in the generals, but again, as a Californian, like they called the election before they finished tallying the ballots in the state. So it like, when I say because my vote for president, didn't, nothing. Yeah, when I say my vote for president didn't matter, I literally mean statistically speaking, no one probably counted my fucking vote for president before they called it for Trump. Yeah. So like it yeah. did not matter. I think it would have been easier for me to deal with if I had just written Bernie in. It was so frustrating to be like, but I played by your rules and you still didn't deliver the goods. I voted for yeah. someone I didn't even want. Like I didn't even have like the moral. Well, at least I voted for someone I wanted to rule. I was like, no, I yeah. compromised my moral values and still got fucked. Yeah. At least I could have had my moral values if I had voted for during that week when we were downtown. Yeah. Um, which I say we, because we all went downtown to yeah. March that week. Uh, uh, when we were all downtown, I printed out um, like a hundred copies of. I like literally like wrote up a whole sheet about like how to eliminate the electoral college, like what the electoral college is and what it would take to get rid of it, and like yeah. handed it out to people on the fucking street because I was so mad. And like I said, like I grew up in the house of a civics teacher, like fucking knowledge and like spreading the actual correct information is like what I learned is the right thing to do so my yeah. the way I could respond to it was to literally create an educational pamphlet about how to get rid of the electoral college and fucking hand it out to strangers on the street like yeah that is, is what I did yeah which is I mean political education is like hugely important yeah. um and in that moment that just like felt like all I could do was like fucking tell a hundred people yeah <laughs> what to do but um yeah, it's been a traumatic couple of years for I, all I, of us, I think. The yeah. only the only thing that got me through that election night was Weed, wine. Well, yeah, yes, <laughs> a, a copious amount both of both. Of us. Yeah, I, I do remember at one point Weed, I wine. just I started drinking at like four because I thought it was going to be a celebration. So it yep. started with fun drinking and it ended with sad drinking. Yep, I yeah. uh, I, I remember yeah. at one point I I was on our friend's balcony. And it was at that moment where we all sort of realized, like, oh, God, this is going to happen. Like, it like it hadn't turned fully yet, no, but it but was No, it was, like, a bunch that. of us, and it was, like, real quiet. And I was, yeah. like, trying to finish a spreadsheet for work, and I was like, I can't do this. And I, I just went out to the balcony and, like, smoked an we entire joint silently and just stared at the Vons across the street. Was that but the, the night the guy got... No. The only good thing that I've happened... I've seen someone get arrested outside of... It's a Ralph's, and I've seen someone get arrested outside of that Ralph's many oh, times. Yep. Interesting. Um, yeah. the, the, only, the only good thing that wound up happening that night, and, and in the long run, I don't actually know how good it's been, was I got really invested in the North Carolina governor's election that year because it was Pat McCrory, mm -hmm. who uh, is, you know, the brilliant artist behind HB2, and uh, pretty much any horrible thing North Carolina has done over the past like eight years, and, his fault. Yep. And also a sort of distant family friend yeah. who I had I had met once at my dad's funeral like visitation, and I made some sort of like off color joke because it had been two hours. And at and that he point, also, he was just mayor at that point. Yeah, at that point he was still just mayor. My mom was like, you know, that was you know that was the mayor. And, and he I was felt, like, I for sure did not. Yeah, I had no idea. And I felt, like, really bad for a minute. But then I actually, like, learned what his platform uh, was as governor and uh, just yelled at him on Twitter every day. Brandon's done a lot of yelling at Pat McCrory on Twitter. And he's done a lot of yelling at, uh, at, uh, Paul, at Paul Ryan, Ryan on Twitter, too. After they had called it for Trump, it was, like, midnight, maybe one in the morning here. And I, I looked at the... Uh, Carolina votes and in the last like 
5% of the vote, uh, Roy Cooper went up by about 500 votes and then just continued to go higher and higher. And then McCrory didn't concede for two Yeah, it was still very, for anybody who's not as intimate with the North Carolina gubernatorial election, it was incredibly close. Um, Like, like Roy Moore and that other guy. It was, it was like, it was like within a couple thousand close and, and like within a polling error to to the point where they did have to do a recount, but he also refused to concede and it became a whole thing. But anyway, him and Roy Moore might not have even ever conceded. We don't know. I don't know. I think he did. I know Roy Moore did not. So outside of coping mechanisms of yelling at people on Twitter, what are some ways that you would suggest as an as an activist that people can get involved to make actual productive change? So I think the first thing people need to do, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, uh, but like it's kind of like that exercise where like you have to do an elementary school, like how do you make a sandwich? And it's like you're like, I hated the that like, one. No, first you have to walk to the cabinet and open the cabinet and grab the bread. It's that kind of, we're going to do that kind of thing. Fucking hated that Which exercise. Which is like, write out your, like, your moral stance on certain issues. Uh, do you think I should exist, yes or no? Do you believe in family separation? And, and I'm going to say this because uh, the two parties, we've got a party, the Republican Party, that is very, like, anti all of these things. And we've got a Democratic Party who loves compromise and civility in the state house. And that kind of stuff. And uh, you need to know when you're okay with the Democrats compromising and when you're going to be a purist on the things. And you need to be able to critically engage. Being on the left means a lot of imperfect people you're going to put hope in because all politicians are imperfect. And I actually think that's a thing we need to move towards. But you need to know why you're critiquing them. Like when I say I don't like Kamala Harris's stance on prison it's not because i like don't love all democrats and no one's good enough for me it's because i fundamentally believe that forced prison labor is slavery and when i when i put it down to that like base level well like how do you compromise on that in my Mm -hmm. opinion you can't i'm not saying that given the choice between a democrat and republican i'm not going to vote for the democrat who is like trying to compromise on slavery But what I will say is that I'm going to make sure that they know that myself and my friends are never going to forget that they're trying to compromise this and we're going to do everything in our power to make it so that they feel like they can't compromise on that. Mm -hmm. And I think Democrats really need to fear being primaried from the left because one of two things will happen. An AOC victory or they'll move fucking left. And we have ceded so much ground to the right in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. I mean... Uh, so yeah, so like get your, get your, like, just write out your moral stance because my guess is, especially if you are a millennial, you're already probably a democratic socialist Mm -hmm. because you've been fucked by the system. You're living in one of the worst economies. You're overeducated. You probably have a lot of debt. Um, you are either from a community for whom the American dream was never really something you expected to get. Uh, and you've been here a long time. So here's like words for this. Or you are from a group like I am that uh, the American dream was supposed to be for and you did all the right things and the rug got pulled out of you and you're the first downwardly mobile generation in your family's history yep. and you're pissed about it. Those are kind of the two millennials you have. The, yeah. the ones from marginalized groups for whom the American dream was always a lie mm-hmm. and now 
and like, and you've probably been screaming about this for a while and yeah. I'm sorry I didn't listen back when you were, or you're from people who are just learning that. But the American yeah. dream is a fucking lie. Uh, well, don't I let also... that depress you. Let's let's build let's build the infrastructure so that you can live a life with dignity. And and that's kind of what democratic socialism and like what socialism is for me. Yeah. Creating systems so that you every person, no matter how poor, no matter how uneducated, uh, no matter who your parents are, what place on this like what invisible lines defined the nation you were born in, mm-hmm. uh, you can live a life with dignity. Yeah. So and also I just want to remind all listeners that because and you pointed sorry you pointed this out to me the other day um uh that you saw someone articulate it really well i think that um when we talk about millennials people are still thinking about teenagers but i want to put it on the record that we yeah. here range from i am 29 you 31 are, and 30 yeah like we are not children <laughs> like yeah like people hear millennial and they think teenager i think and yeah. i think that that's a huge flaw yeah. especially in a political movement where yeah, people no, think oh it's a movement of millennials and they think we're children we're not we are 30 years old people we are adults yeah like, we're, we are those people who graduated into a failed economy where no one was held accountable and were offered unpaid internships and now you're shocked that we don't trust the generation who offered us unpaid internships to fix the mess they created. Yep. Well, I mean, the, the, like, here, here, why should we trust you? You all built this shit. Yep. Here's the thing, though. All you got to do is get a job and buy a house. Oh, yeah. Right. It's yeah. super easy. Oh, yeah. yeah it's super, yeah. super easy. Super easy. And don't spend so much money on avocado toast. Oh, yeah. That's fine. Not Ugh. not an issue. We're, um, I'm a terrible Southern Californian. I, actually, I don't like avocados. I actually Same. did the math. If you wanted to buy uh, a house by and like saving the money from your avocado toast, you would have to give up daily avocado toast for 200 years. Yeah. It's yeah. It's a stupid joke. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So write your moral stance and then find an org that is doing work around those things. Uh, obviously I'm going to plug DSA. Yeah. It's great. There's lots of other ones in LA mm-hmm. as well. That might be like better suited. Um, a very crucial thing that to keep in mind is these orgs are volunteer led. Yeah. And we are fighting for these kind of perfect goals. I think a lot of people were like genuinely shocked when they entered a DSA space and it wasn't like perfectly woke, yeah. which makes sense because that's what we're striving for. But everyone's on learning shit. And so look at their bylaws, look at their misconduct, misconduct policy, make sure that they have like systems in place that show that this is being led by a group of people who are striving to create this mm-hmm. and then help them create that. But like, uh, yeah, one of the things I learned, like, writing our misconduct policy was how there was, like, how few, if any, like, even, I would say, like, adequate misconduct policies, like, existed in the world. And we looked at everything from, like, nonprofits and NGOs and corporations. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of these liberatory systems and these, like, ways of operating in a more egalitarian way don't exist and we're building them. And so, of course, critique them like engage with them critically engage with everything critically always love your friends but critically love your yeah. spouses but critically love your family like be critical because that's how people grow it's everything the dunk zone's about <laughs> yeah um welcome to the dunk I zone will end but, you. <laughs> yeah but keep in mind that like it's not enough to just be like point out what's wrong people also have to put then put in the work to make it better yeah um and i think that like please come to these spaces wanting to do the work mm-hmm. to help make it better because um, it is a lot of work. And, but the more of us that are doing it, the yeah. less each individual person has to do. Since I, I saw the DSA sort of pop up in a bigger way here in LA, like I, I've always kind of wanted to get involved, 
But I've always followed politics more in the, like, follow the nitty-gritty details because it makes me incredibly anxious and then just kind of spiral about it and do nothing. But by, by that same tack, like, all of my friends are in the DSA, and I feel like I'm not speaking out of school by saying, like, you're pretty intense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are, are, all of my friends that are, in, that are in DSA are all very intense, very passionate people. And it just seems like a lot. Like it seems like a lot to have. How do you keep? How do you have the stamina to to like be so involved? I'm not a trusting person, and I believe that if I don't do something, it won't get done. And yeah, it's like it's enough. not. It's and not, not healthy. everybody it has like, to be involved yeah. as involved as she is. There are ways yeah. that you can it's, get involved. It's not healthy. I'm like it's. I work. It's like a problem in comedy when I'm doing improv. Like I'm. I. I also feel like as a person that like I have to earn my keep in any social environment. Sure. Uh so normally that's like if I don't make you laugh no one wants to keep me around. And then how that like <laughs> translated to DSA is if I'm not being actively useful no one wants me around. And that's actually not the case. Like this is that's why I got stuff. so active so fast, yeah. but like is actively something I need to unlearn and I'm like working on unlearning because it's not healthy for me psychologically. Sure. Um there are, are lots of ways to get involved and uh, one of the first organizer trainings I got, they like did like a chart. It was like a like a target, like, mm-hmm. and it was like here's like your like dues paid members were the outer ring, and those are the ones who like pay dues and come to nothing, and then here's like your semi active members, and those are the ones who pay their dues and, like maybe come to a march, and then here are your active members, and those are the ones who like come to committee me- meetings and and help you phone bank and come to the marches, and then here's like like your core people who are the ones who like run it, like do everything else, um, and that like life happens especially like this is volunteer this isn't a mm-hmm. job so like life happens so like i know i want to be a be a parent like at someday i'm gonna take a maternity leave from my career and from my organizing so i'll That's probably go from like woke, core uh-huh. i mean it yeah. is though yeah <laughs> paid family leave is incredibly woke <laughs> yeah uh so like people are gonna move in and out and that's yeah that is okay and everybody and has different skills like- valid and that's why it's an advantage to have like a large membership because it is unrealistic to think that any organization is ever going to have like only core members. Yeah. Uh, that is of any like meaningful size. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so like even just taking the first steps of paying your dues is helpful because it takes like clipboards cost money, water bottles for marches cost money, meeting spaces. Meeting spaces are so freaking expensive. Yeah, they yeah. are, especially those, in LA. Yeah, those cost money. So like pay your dues, uh, pay them to national because national. Like that's how you become a member. You can't vote in any local DSA elections if you're not a member, but we don't get any money from national yet. So like also pay your local dues. Yeah. Um, and then come to some stuff. Sometimes just start with that. Like I run our like agitprop, which is our media one. Just come to an agitprop meeting sometime. Don't even volunteer for anything yet. If you're not comfortable, just it's okay. We've got a lot of people who are like, I've been a member for six months and never had the time. And now I'm at my first meeting and a lot of members who will spend two or three months just kind of coming to meetings, participating in discussion, not volunteering for anything. And then when they're comfortable, they will. And it's great. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one of the things I love about DSA is that there is space for people like me who feel like if I'm not doing anything, I have no value. And so I get like manic about it and try to do everything. (laughs) And they have space for people who like really do need to kind of like, who aren't like jumping the deep end people who are like, we wade in slowly and uh, no one is more valuable to the Mm -hmm. organization than others. And there are pros and cons to each type of personality and engagement. So uh, whichever way you want to engage with the org is valuable. And I think 
one of the big things uh, in socialism that's, like, really cool to learn because it's not how we're taught about movements. Because the way we're taught about movements, it's, like, it was, like, Martin Luther King and, like, people followed him. And it's, like, Martin Luther King was, was organized. Yeah. Well, was hated, but also, like, even when he was left, like, he was organized by organizers older than him. Yeah. Uh, people helped plan that march. He didn't just start walking in the street and people followed, no. right? That took an immense amount of planning. Uh, so it's, like, no one is disposable. And no one is indispensable. And yeah. it's, just, it's the same um, thing too as there's this there's this Amy Poehler quote where somebody once asked her how she became an overnight success. She was like, "Oh, I worked really hard for ten years," and it, and it feels like this movement sort of the same thing happened. It had been around for a while, but then it just sort of exploded. Well, yeah. I think interest in it exploded due to specific yeah. climate, but. But people, but we're still at the beginning of those ten years now. I oh, think totally. with the actual goals that DSA wants to to accomplish and i mean there's different i think it also when you were talking about like oh you wouldn't know how to get involved like there's also different skills for example like i would be very helpful at a brake light clinic you would stare at the car and not know what to do yeah i have uh, th- <laughs> like, thing that me might is not no be the skills. way for you to be involved like i mean the thing about me is i have no skills you have skills because you could probably help her on the media committee you have writing yeah. skills and also right. like Writing we, is a skill. Being able to articulate a position is actually a skill that not everybody has. It is. And also, like, we are trying to organize the masses. Yeah. Uh, so we're not looking for the next great speaker who's going to inspire the world or the the next great policy person. We are looking to meet each individual person mm-hmm. who shares our values. And honestly, like... The reality is, is like a lot of people who are coming to the left are coming at first with single issue things. I think this Mm -hmm. is like an interesting thing that I'm learning, especially because like in the Twitter world, it's very easy to be very purist and assume if you think if you think this like me, then like all the dominoes fall are the exact same. You're telling me Twitter is bad. It can be. But it's like, you know, when we go to like you might organize like some of the teachers we saw doing this wildcat strikes are lifelong Republicans and they might not have the same views as us on immigration and so it's but they're still worth organizing with the mind of trying to get them to see how these values that they're expressing here should also apply to immigrants but we don't kick them out because they're not perfect right away it's Mm -hmm. like uh it is our responsibility i think to explain to people why these things are important so um you know a lot of people come at at the left from the healthcare issue from wanting medicare for all and like maybe don't think that uh a someone who works at McDonald's should have like a living wage. Mm -hmm. But once you talk to them about why this is important, it's not that hard to get them to see this. So like this idea that you need to come to us with like some special skill set, I think is, uh, actually like not only is it not accurate, but like DSA organizers or any organizers on the left want to make a point of counteracting that narrative because we just want you as you are, because Mm -hmm. we're never going to organize the masses if we need you to come in as this perfect leftist and this perfect organizer, and we're never going to be good enough at, at having these conversations in a way that leads people towards our ideas. If we stop engaging the minute you show any kind of like improper wokeness or lack of skills. I know one of the biggest questions I get when discussing socialism is I think that especially in our country, there is a large, uh, um, mythical narrative of socialism and how it relates to communism right. and especially when DSA and other socialist organizations talk about dismantling capitalist structures but then you compare it to something like Sweden which is democratic socialist which is working democratically within capitalist structures um, can you give people who are a little more unfamiliar 
a sense of what your objections to capitalism is and why it's why it's not communism, why it's not Soviet communism. Yeah. So <laughs> I know you've done a lot of reading on this and stuff. So you, yeah. I'm just looking for someone else to help me articulate this. So my objection to capitalism is that it's like inherently exploitative, and it always pre like there's no morality because it's an economic system. And never yeah. and like a little bit like to it like to give it credit where credit's due, it never claimed to have a morality in it. Yeah. It is an economic system, but it uh, requires on, uh, it relies on constantly making more than you made the year before. So it's mm-hmm. like this mass consumption. Um, and knowing that we've got a finite amount of resources, both in terms of like raw materials and like only so much money to constantly having to make more one year than you did the year before means taking more, which means keeping people out of the higher classes, uh, depressing wages. And then one thing we've seen, uh, especially with the American empire is, uh, going in and, uh, stealing from other nations, uh, keeping them poor, taking their natural resources and then, uh, selling them for profit. And it, um, you know, Hillary Clinton on the campaign said like capitalism did not invent sexism and racism and she's not wrong. It did not. It absolutely profits from it, and a lot of the legal changes have been made around sexism and racism, and the ways to kind of close, like, we're not going to close the wage gap without uh, confronting capital, because mm-hmm. we need things like f- like free uh, parental leave. Yeah. Uh, and now it becomes a lot more threatening. It's very easy to say, well, it's not easy, because a lot of work went into it, but uh, capitalism encourages exploitation, and then rewards it. Yeah. And I think that's inherently immoral. Um, I also think an important distinction to make, and one of the reasons, uh, just in terms of like talking about like historical moments, why I think DSA is catching on is because we don't have to answer the Soviet question. Yeah. Um, I would not call the Soviet Union as it became um, pretty quickly. Like the revolution, I think, is really important. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. anyone who believes in liberatory politics should read about the Russian Revolution. There's a lot of lessons to gain. The first International Women's Day stems from when women marched uh, and, like, refused to say no. Like, there's a huge moment for, like, feminism and, like, uh, disability politics and queer politics. Like, there was, like, this, like, kind of, like, utopian period and then it disappeared. Uh, In my opinion, what Soviet Russia became was very much state authoritarian capitalism. Yeah. Because it was expansive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one thing too, people will be like, well, look at Venezuela. Like socialism's never worked anywhere in the country. Well, be, that's partly because the most powerful nations in the world were actively going in and making sure it didn't happen. So they mm-hmm. were assassinating leaders. The CIA was going in and like backing these like military juntas that would overthrow it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't think we've actually ever seen a country historically try socialism in a way where it wasn't intervened mm-hmm. by larger military powers. Yeah. I would uh, or, or in a pure form, because even something like, like I said, something like Sweden, they are democratic socialists. They are still based on a capitalist society. But yeah. There are large portions of social life that are delegated to the government. Yeah. And what's interesting, like I, th- I forget which Nordic nation, but it was one of them that uh, has the UBI. Mm-hmm. And that was actually enacted by their conservative government to try and placate and stop the radical 
like communist movement that was underway and it worked because people got comfortable they stopped a- they stopped asking for more it's um for those of you who don't know what ubi is it's universal base income yeah, yeah. Um, also I-, I would be remiss if i didn't say that junta was the name of fish's first studio album Continue. okay well you would not be but <laughs> you would be very um, off brand if you yeah, did not be say off it. Brand. <laughs> but yeah i mean for sure and i think a lot of times people conflate and, and, and I've said this to people and then gotten yelled at, but in the most basic base definition level, communism and capitalism are um, communism and capitalism are monetary structures and socialism is more of a political structure. And I yeah. think that's a thing that people often because of the history of our country, people hear socialism and they assume communism and then they give it to everything that that's associated with. But there's no perfect there's no perfect economic system. Right. Every economic system is inherently corruptible, which is the issue with quote unquote communism. And I'm talking like super base level. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things too with socialism is a recognition that people respond to the structures that govern their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, it is that, which is why it's so important to create structures that allow for people to be the best selves and are, uh, not, dependent on personality mm-hmm. uh so to use like a very uh current example ice was invented in 2003 um 129 i believe democrats between the house and the senate voted in favor of the creation of ice um including my representative adam schiff mm-hmm. um and i believe nancy pelosi and hillary clinton as well mm-hmm. uh and then under barack obama the use of ice expanded he was called the deporter in chief beforehand Mm -hmm. he wasn't doing anything that is as like viscerally horrific as like tearing children away from their parents but he was sending parents away from their children here and that is a form of family separation Mm -hmm. and i think it's cool that we've gotten a point in our immigration discussion where we could call all deportations our family separation yeah um as is by the way police violence because if you shoot and kill someone's parent that is a very permanent form of family separation yeah um so uh, with the abolish ICE narrative, I would are like a lot of people are saying, well, like let's defund it under Trump, mm-hmm. and then what they imply is that when there's a Democrat in power, will uh, abolish it, replace it with something. That's new. not necessarily true, and I don't believe up, that yeah. for a second. No, and especially not if it is up to just the politicians. It's not immense pressure. Yeah. Um, what I would argue is that ICE is a system of white supremacy. It is an institution that is inherently immoral, and there is no individual person good enough to be trusted with that institution. Barack Obama is one of our beloved presidents. I think he is one of our best presidents. It was wrong. It was immoral when he was using ice. Mm -hmm. Ice should not exist. So for me, socialism is about developing structures and systems that are as close to incorruptible and are as not dependent on a good person being in office because all of our people who will wield power are going to be problematic. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I think uh, a lot of people think that like communism and socialism are this naive thing of like people being inherently good. And it's like, no, but I do think there are structures that like lead that can uh, help people be the best that they can be and mm-hmm. can be designed in a way that limits the ability of one individual in power to affect them. Speaking of uh, our, our national climate and like presence and one person, I'm fine. I was thinking about this the other day about how, it's so weird to me that my whole life, you know, again, base, civic, civics upbringing, base level to me, the, my whole life, the difference between the fact that I, like, I was a Democrat who leaned towards socialism and, and not a Republican, to me, it was the difference between the government and um, basically federal and states' rights. But now I feel like we live in this climate where all of a sudden I'm 
leaning so much more towards states' rights because I don't see my federal government being able to handle the goals that we want, and especially living in a state like California where it seems so much more achievable to, you know, ask for things to be enacted on a state level. All of it, I realized that the other day, and I was like, I've never been, like, a states' rights person, but all of a sudden I'm like, no, fuck it, let's just do it in California. Yeah. <laughs> like, I also, like, I think a lot of us were raised in this idea of, like, like actually, like, in the West Wing world where part of being seen as, like, good and intelligent and cultured was knowing what was going on nationally and knowing about Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the things when I first joined DSA, I knew almost nothing about who our mayor was, what his policies were, yeah. who my city council members were, what their policies were. I was living in the middle of, like we still are, but like one of the biggest homelessness crises in the country. And yeah. I, yeah. it had never occurred to me to, look at the people making that happen. So I actually think that like, well, we don't want to be so states rights that it's like, fuck you. I get to because this state is deciding to oppress people yeah. the way I think we normally associate like states rights yeah. with like, which is like the Confederacy. Yeah. I think so. That's uh, what I was shift thinking. To local attention, I think is actually really good and beneficial. Yeah. Um, because it is the easiest way to enact change. And also like, yeah, like it is, uh, our city council members and our, our mayor affects our the material conditions of our day-to-day life way more yeah. than the president does. I mean, even, even things as small as there are, I'm sure, people who do not live in L.A. that would, just based on our demographics, assume L.A. is a sanctuary city. Yep. And it is not. It is not. And um, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people in L.A. think we're a sanctuary city because our mayor very intentionally chooses words to imply that we are, but we're not. And there's cities like Philadelphia which is a sanctuary city, but their police force is still collaborating with ICE. So I think one of the things we're seeing is like a lot of people really, really paying attention to not so much what our politicians are saying, but what they're like actually doing and reacting to that, which I think is, is good. And I hope that we can keep that up during peacetime, Mm -hmm. um, as it were, or like in the post Trump world, uh, because like, again, like, you know, Trump's use of ice is is awful and and like unparalleled, but it was made possible a because ice existed, but b because it expanded. This would have mm-hmm. been a lot more slow move to this if Obama had never touched ice. Yeah. Uh, and I think when things are good and when we feel comfortable, that's when we should be paying the most acute attention to the small kind of nitty gritty wonky policy decisions that are being made about how these institutions work and can function. Uh, because then because it's so much when yeah. they're being used improperly. Mm-hmm. How has your work as an organizer and the things you've learned from the DSA over the last year or so, how has that affected your work as a comedian and producer? If it has at all, it might not have. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, it's shifted my idea of like what appropriate jokes are willing to make. Um, sure. There's a couple episodes in my web series uh where that would have been written slightly differently if they'd Mm -hmm. been written post-radicalization. We have got one episode that, that is funny. And I think it like, it's not great, but it's not like horribly offensive, uh, called hipster or homeless. And the character ends up on a date with a homeless guy. Mm -hmm. She thinks he's a hipster. And I think that, uh, some of the jokes were making fun of like the dirtiness of being homeless and rewatching that now. I'm like, it it, it is a little cringy Mm -hmm. to me. Again, I think it's still in the realm of what the larger world thinks is an appropriate, place to go for a joke but personally it's not where I'd go now and I think I could have written an episode with that same exact title in a way 
that had more of an eye of like punching up mm-hmm. and did a better job of making the character who was judging them be the butt of the joke a little bit more than like the character who was homeless. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think that I found that is really great is there's not a lot of comics on like established comics who are punching from the left. And you would think that being like a socialist would make you like really unappealing to like conservatives. But a lot of people come to comedy less for the political analysis and more for the catharsis of seeing people they don't like be made fun of. And to liberals credits, they take a joke pretty well. Yeah. So punching from the left, I found that a lot of my friends who are Republican are like liking statuses I make even though I know that they probably wouldn't like the policies if I finally got the Democrats to do them yeah, because they like the joke of let's make fun of the Democrat. And I think a lot of liberals come at liberalism from this sense of wanting to be on the right side of history. And while it sometimes makes them understandably uncomfortable when you point out that they're actually on the wrong side of history, if they stay that center are very willing to engage and comedy makes it a safe place for them to Mm -hmm. engage with some of these, like what they thought were truths being pointed out as as being a lie or being problematic. Yeah. Um, and I think coinciding with just, like, being 30, like, being older and kind of giving very few shits what people think about me, my voice, like, my comedic voice has just gotten so much more unapologetic and mine. Totally. Um, that I'm just seeing, like, I'm getting a lot more, like, people wanting to collaborate with me who maybe haven't met me yet just because they've seen, like, I booked a stand-up show, I haven't done stand-up in years, based on Facebook statuses. Yeah. And I, and I said, Damn. I was like, yeah, I'd be happy to do this, but, like, I, I don't do stand-up. They're like, if you just read your fucking Facebook, that's what we want you here for. We want <laughs> your, like, point of view. Yeah. And I think, especially as a female comic, so much of, like, growing into being a woman and it's a gross phase, I think, is, like, you're just taught to do it like very self-reflexively and like it be a response to your gender and how the world interacts with your gender. And that's always been very, like, but like, I'm still living that. Like, I don't know how like a 30 year old woman could have like a good set about like what it's like being a woman that's, they're not going to then like change opinion on when they're 50, Um, which is fine if you do, but it's nice for me to be like, to, to have like this political thing about why I like, I don't just, before everything was very much like filtered through my own experience and it was like, well, as a woman, as a Californian, as a whatever. And now I've got like a political worldview that sees things as like much more interconnected and not just about me. And I think that makes means when I write joke, the authenticity comes from my personal experience, but the worldview is about people is about way more beyond just people like me. And I think that that is very cool. Yeah. Um, and it's make nice. it makes it easier to write for actors and comedians who are nothing like me. Mm-hmm. Not that I can, you know, I'm not, not gonna write. I'm not gonna write. Them, yeah, I'm but... not gonna speak for them or write experiences that aren't me. But I could write for them as my targeted audience. Um, in a way that's not in a way that I couldn't beforehand, yeah. and that's not like reductive. Yeah, or like white savior e, or to, yeah. or even punching down. Yeah, yeah, or that's not punching down and having and also like seeing the narrative around like woke humor is so dominated by older comedians who don't know how to do it Mm -hmm. that even though I disagreed with them, I think at some point I still assumed it was limiting and it was just like, well, it's limiting, but it's a better world. So we'll just work in this limited capacity. Mm -hmm. And when I look at how much there is to punch up at and like limiting, 
it's not limiting. You guys are doing the same fucking jokes you've been doing since the nineties. And it's like, ha ha ha. And like, woe is me. I can't say like the F word now about gay people. And how am I going to get a punchline? And it's like, look up. There's so much to make fun of. There's so much to comment on Yeah, more than almost any other time in the world. Now, why the fuck would you need to recycle that hack joke from the nineties? I think there's even a a moment in, uh, Cameron's rape jokes special where she says, like, I think you can make a joke about anything. Just make sure it's a good joke. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, uh, one more, one more FAQ here before we wrap up that, uh, that we get a lot. Well, not that we get a lot, but that I see a lot. Oh no, I get this a lot. I don't know what it is, but I get it a lot. (laughs) Uh, tell us about the Rose. Oh, the Rose. So, uh, Rose Schneiderman, uh, gave a speech during the garment worker strike, I believe, uh, in New York. So there was, uh, in the turn of the century, labor conditions were really bad. This is part of like one of the first rises of like socialism and communism in America, um, a lot of workers were from Eastern European were, were Eastern European were like Marxism and communist thinking had already started to percolate. And they immigrated over, um, often fleeing persecution, like, especially in like the Eastern Europe that was part of the Russian empire mm-hmm. fleeing persecution from the czar often for being Jewish, uh, which is why there's a lot of like links between anti-Semitism and anti-communist sentiment, um, is because of that particular immigration, mm-hmm. uh, habit. Uh, and they were organizing around better labor rights is that especially after a, uh, shirtwaist factory burnt down and the, the triangle, the triangle, yeah, triangle yeah. Shirtwaist factory. and one of the reasons why it was so destructive was because the owner locked all the fire exits so that mm-hmm. his workers couldn't take breaks Yeah, to so make them more, more efficient. Hundreds of women got locked in during a fire and they were yep. all killed. It yeah. was in New York. And so she gave a speech. I don't know if people in other parts of the country learn about this, but uh, yeah. where I'm from, we, we do. Yeah, no, we learned about yeah. it uh, back home. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so Rose Schneiderman gave a speech, and I'm paraphrasing, where she said, uh, the workers deserve bread, but we deserve roses too, just like the wealthy have. And it was this idea that being working class shouldn't mean that you only get an austere lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess the equivalent would be like when people make fun of wealthier moms for buying their kids an Xbox. It's like mm-hmm. maybe your, their child doesn't have to live a miserable fucking existence just because they're born poor. Yeah. Uh, and so bread and roses is very common iconography amongst all leftist orgs. Mm-hmm. Um, bread representing like the things you need to like live and roses representing the things that make life livable. Mm-hmm. And every so human is, deserves both. That's why a lot of DSA people have the little rose icon. Yeah. Well, so. the DSA logo is what's called the brotherhood handshake, which mm-hmm. is uh, two workers. Uh, usually one is a white hand and one is a black hand uh, shaking hands in solidarity. And then the rose on top of it is yep. the DSA logo. So that explains that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with us about socialism or how <laughs> people can get involved before we, the, yeah, the two of them were literally both just swooning at each other. Yeah. We were, we're excited. <laughs> the utopia is going to be great. Yeah. Um, you could go to dsausa.org to look up your local chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in Los Angeles, you could go to dsa-la.org, uh, to join us here. Uh, please pay your local dues wherever you are because chapters don't get that much money from national, um, and like brass tax things cost money. Uh, if you're in LA and like afraid to go to your first meeting alone, please feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Kelsey F gold. I'd be happy to go with you. Um, or if I can't go there to find someone who is friendly and I can vouch for to go with you as well. Fucking vote in November. Yeah. Vote in November. <laughs> uh, but or we get will act- find you and hunt yeah. you down, but get active before that. 
um I'm just saying at the minimum vote in November motherfuckers I actually think that's an important (laughs) thing voting is your minimum responsibility not your maximum yeah Yeah. so do it but there's so much more you can do um and uh if you're not registered to vote and you don't know how to also reach out to your your local friendly DSA friend they will help you figure out how to register yeah and just like on a mushy gushy like kind of note like capitalism is very isolating it like destroys community it literally destroys public spaces um and we live in a very technocratic society that says like only people with like certain skills deserve like a life with dignity. And it is very easy for us to say like, no, we're fighting for a world where like everyone, no matter how skilled or unskilled, rich or poor deserves that. Uh, it's a lot easier to fight for that for other people than it is to like give yourself permission uh, to just be. So hmm. personally try as best as possible to uh, value yourself and praise yourself in a way that is not based merely on your accomplishments it is okay to be proud of your accomplishments but try as well to love yourself just for existing because it makes it a lot easier to love other people if i could just do that that would cure all my anxiety though yeah if i could do that i'd be a lot less active (laughs) Uh, well i wouldn't feel like i needed to prove myself in every room i walk into always and and also uh when is your next pack show oh my next pack show yeah i was gonna say hold on As we were still talking about this, you had said people can reach out to you on Twitter. Is there any other way they can find you as Uh, we get to that? Yes. I'm also on Instagram as 24kgold, uh, a super ironic name now post-radicalization. Or uh, Kelsey Goldberg. I've got a professional page on Facebook. Please like it. Cool. And on that note, you are also, as we mentioned, a producer and a a writer and a comedian and all this stuff. And you are on a... Uh, sketch team at the pack which Brandon also performs at you guys have a show coming up right yeah you're on a lot of different shows there I see all of a sudden you're on a show yeah (laughs) I um decided that I should work at hard as my comedy career as I'm at organizing uh (laughs) and suddenly got a bad energy and never need to sleep so I'm on a bunch of shows but my team Bedlam performs the third Sunday of every month at Mm -hmm. 8 p.m and our next show is July 15th Cool. That's actually a few days after Gunslinger's next show. Yeah. yeah. Ours you guys are Wednesdays, right? Yeah, ours is Wednesday the uh, 11th awesome. yeah. at uh, at 8. So, yeah, go to that, too. Cool. Um, Anything else you want to plug other uh, than DSA and comedy? Listen to back episodes of this podcast ah, and like them sweet. and subscribe to them and Yay. comment on iTunes. There you go. We, were yeah. gonna, you yeah. got, we got that covered now. We don't have to say it now. <laughs> um. Yeah, if, if people are looking to find more Brandon Beck content, they could go to Hell Yes Brandon on all of the things. Uh, I've got a SoundCloud that I'm putting up music on every <laughs> every so often in a. Uh, uh, are you a SoundCloud of, rapper? I am not a SoundCloud rapper. Oh man, um, we don't understand what SoundCloud rappers are because we're old. <laughs> but we had a whole running joke about them yesterday. Nice. Um and. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's kind of it for me. I think that's sort of all I got. Well, you said I mean, the you pack can, show is the fifteenth. The pack show. Yeah. Does Macho have a show coming up? Uh, I don't think we have anything scheduled a- around when this goes up. You can find me at the fish shows here in town uh, at the Forum on the twenty seventh and twenty eighth. You if you want to come down and say hi. Cannot find me there. <laughs> Um, you we also reached a point in our relationship where I do not have to go to those yeah. many years ago. Love. Many years ago. Mm-hmm. Love, what about you? Um, I, as usual, you can find me everywhere at, at Girl Adactyl. Uh, I am 
still unemployed unless something changes in the week between when we record this and post it um because i don't have a gig booked um i will be working on a show this fall that starts production meetings soon but i don't know if i'm allowed to talk about it yet um oh, but exciting yeah Yay. so it's cool i'm gonna be technical director on that so yeah other than that you can follow this podcast online at at into it pod on twitter or i think you'd be into it on facebook um we don't have an instagram because i just post all these photos on my own page um and i'm, I'm gonna uh, i'm gonna bring this up at the very end of the show Okay. Um, That's now, though, right? My, yes. Yeah, well, I still, I still was not done with all our business. Oh, yeah, finish your business. And I was I not done with our business. Finish your you business. can also email us at intuitpod at gmail.com if you have a suggestion for a topic that you'd like to discuss with us. Um, also, thank you, as always, to Kaylin West at Tiny Stills for the use of our theme song. Starting Over is a Lot Like Giving Up, which is off the album Falling is Like Flying. She also has a new album out right now called Laughing Into the Void, and she is on tour with that right now, and it's a really great album, and you should go check it out. Um, she was doing a promotion where if you followed her on Bandcamp, you might get the thing for free, but that's probably over by now. Um, but yeah, it's a great album, and uh, yeah, that's all. <laughs> um, so my brother is a hardcore libertarian Uh-oh. he, he has, doesn't think he is though he has at certain points called me a lefty communist socialist uh bernie sanders just like all of the things you hear from the right about like, the left that are somehow a negative yeah i like liberal scum i don't know if he i don't know if he has but graham if for whatever reason you've listened to this if you can make it through this entire episode and send me like video proof that you've listened. I will give you a hundred dollars because I think it's that that improbable that you'll sit through this. Also, just a, if any other libertarians listen, I just want to just like a little okay because like and I'm uh, taking this quote from at existential comms, the Twitter account existential comics. It's been floating around Facebook and it's so succinct and brilliant. So libertarians talk about self ownership. But my boss owns my labor, my landlord owns my apartment, and Twitter owns this fucking tweet. Unless production, housing, and infrastructure are public, property owners get to carve up every meaningful part of you. You don't own shit. So, um, on that, uh, on that uh, note, on that delightful note, podcast over. Podcast over.